Hello, and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. Welcoming back to the studio, David and I, at least we're in the same city, although we're still on opposite sides of town. David, how are you doing? It's good to finally be back like, taping together after a couple of months. Yeah, that's right. Even though we're not in the same room. But yeah, really good to see you. I'm glad to be back. You know, as this probably intersects with the topic of our show today, uh, things change very quickly. And so it's I've only been out of Beijing for maybe three months, came back in early October and was already amazed that even the, my neighborhood and the areas around where I live. And I took a, some walks through the 798 Arts District and found it just almost parts of it totally unrecognizable. How so? so? Yeah. Oh, new art galleries, entire uh, avenues that the buildings have been either completely reconditioned or torn down and then rebuilding anew. It's losing the the art district is losing its sort of quaint or, you know, nostalgic abandoned factory look that gave it its its chic kind of appeal. And it's becoming more and more now just a a very pleasant and very popular, uh, you know, tourist place, lots of Lots and lots of young people. Very popular place, very fun, but it's changing its character as cities do. And it's fun to watch. I have those nostalgic feelings and pangs of, of loss, but at the same time, life goes on. And uh, that place belongs to those 20 year old kids now and not me. So I can just sip my latte and watch them go by the new era. I've been feeling that way for a while. I remember being in my early 30s and, and doing some. Chinese language training up at uh, Tsinghua back in the early 2000s and sitting in a bar stool, I think probably in one of the earliest incarnations of propaganda, one of those other Wudalco clubs and right. sitting with my fellow 30-something graduate student at the bar and looking around the patrons and linking, wow, I'm 31 years old and I'm officially the creepy old guy at this bar. It's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a journey. It's a step in the journey as always. It was interesting. This October holiday, Beijing was not as crowded as I thought it would be. It was crowded for sure, but given the tourist Armageddon that was this summer where almost every site in China was just packed more than I'd ever seen it before, I thought October, this past October holiday would be some kind of like culmination of this, you know, the wave would break. And you know, it was certainly crowded. There's certainly a lot of people around, but it, it wasn't nearly as crazy as I thought it would be. But the one thing I did notice was just how young the travelers skewed. And I don't know, as you said, maybe I'm getting older or, but. <laughs> yeah, Jeremiah, they, everyone is looking younger to every, us. <laughs> everyone's looking young. But, but, but seriously, you know, you, it, it, it used to be, you know, you think of tourists in China, you think of the busloads with the pensioners. You know, you go to Beijing and other sites these days, it does feel like it's more and more. It's 20-somethings are out there. Perhaps it's because, you know, they have some time on their hands. But it, it is interesting to watch this kind of youth-driven tourism right. that's inspired and marketed through social media, through online videos, through, you know, live streaming and that kind of thing. Speaking of travel, though, we have with us one of Beijing's former residents and one of China's and Asia's uh, most prolific travel writers, Thomas Bird, who's here to talk about his new book. Thomas Bird fled the rain-soaked British suburbs for East Asia in 2005. He cut his teeth as a magazine editor, a regular contributor to the South China Morning Post, and co-authored more than 10 guidebooks. He's into travel. He's into beer. He plays the guitar. He's into the teachings of Zhuangzi. And he has just finished a new book, a travel memoir about riding the locomotives, trains, and rails of China called the Harmony Express. Thomas, how you doing? 
I'm really good, thanks. And, and thanks for having me on the show, guys. It's great to catch up. So this book is about your travels throughout China by rail. This is a, you know, in some ways, this is a genre of travel and travel writing that has some really deep roots. What inspired you to kind of follow uh, in the carriage, uh, let's say, follow in the carriage steps of such past luminaries as Paul Thoreau and others? A fantastic question. So uh, right off the bat, the first piece of travel literature I ever read was uh, the, I think it's called The Big Red Train Ride by Eric Newby. And it was gifted to me by my father, which was very strange because my father didn't really read literature and seldom gave me gifts. And just one day randomly, he, he said, oh, I saw this book. I thought you would like it. and that was my introduction to not just travel literature, but the railway as the the engine for that journey, that, that great means and medium of travel. I read Paul Thoreau's Riding the Iron Rooster pretty much like most budding Sinophiles would have in the early days, and I very much enjoyed it, but I didn't think, oh, I need to, to reauthor that. Uh, at some stage. Basically, what happened was uh, when I was working uh, as for one of those old expat magazines, they're sort of redundant these days because of smartphone technology. But do you remember back in the day, you kind of couldn't go out in Beijing without a Beijinger in your back pocket or timeout or whichever one was your, your preference uh, because it had the Chinese... Uh, listings right you could show it to a taxi driver and you could find out um which bands were playing um you know which bars were happening um so i was working for one of those the uh that's pearl river delta in uh guangdong province i was the shenzhen editor and there was a, a newspaper a, a news page that we had to fill out every month like what's happening in china news wise and it just struck me while I was working there that, oh, I need to add the new Guangzhou to Zhuhai light rail line. Oh, they've just opened Guangzhou South. Oh, they've just opened Shenzhen North. But this was, there was just this railway building blitz going on. And we were in the midst of it. And so I would go down to Hong Kong and buy books about China. And I'd always look out for books about railways in China. And it was Paul Theroux's book was, was, was there on the shelf. And so I, I, I repurchased it and began to reread it. And it was a China of frozen cabbage fields and Mao suits and steam engines. And I thought, wow, this book is, you know, it's a great book, but it's so dated. So I guess that seeded the idea that if I was going to write a book, that it should be along those lines. The other thing that I wanted to do was to write a book. You, you, you know, when books are successful, they create a template. So, for example, when Shanghai Baby came out, within a few years, there was Beijing Doll. There was Candy. There was these imitation books. So I loved Peter Hessler's Rivertown. But I felt it had become a template for the China book. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to 
to, to, to follow that template. So I, I felt that maybe looking back a bit more old school to the more classic travel log genre would be a neat way to talk about 21st century China and its high speed transformation. Nowadays, there's the bullet train and the regular trains and the new people, even it's all a bit different than it was when I was traveling. I think if you had written this book or this uh, memoir in the 1990s or, or earlier, a lot of the uh, dialogues and the, and the interesting interaction would have been on the train itself. Mm -hmm. and, you know, for me, that was the experience. You, you had to interact with the people on the train because the space was so tight and, and it mutually compromised. And so you got to know people or hate people. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of the, the most uh, compelling, you know, incidents and, and memorable dialogue would be on the train. Nowadays, in the bullet train, people just sit there in their own little pad with their iPads and phones and stuff and pay, don't pay attention to you. What What is your experience of the train? You know, because you've been taking train for a long time also. What do you think of this change and how did your book, you know, fit into this? That's That's a really great question. So... I arrived in 2005, and I think it's, it's difficult to communicate to people how much China changed from 2005 until now. But a, a really good way is to is to is is to compare GDPs. So, in 2005, all of China's GDP was smaller than Great Britain's. It was a nominally poor country, right? Um, and I took trains. I, I worked for two and a half years, three years as sort of rite of passage English teaching jobs, as so many people do when they arrive in, in this part of the world. And I would take my vacations when they were set. So October holiday, Chinese New Year, uh, May holiday. And I mean, it was a hustle. Yeah. I mean, it was the, the loopy horcher, everybody crowding into these tiny spaces, people smoking everywhere, throwing peanut shells everywhere. And that was my sort of introduction to Chinese rail travel. It was it was arduous. It was a great experience, but it, it was travel in the, in the real sense of the word, you know, coming from the French travail work, right? When I started to see these high-speed trains popping up, I had the full-time job at a magazine. And so I, I really wasn't traveling nationwide uh, I might have to go to Shanghai for a head office meeting once a year. But my only travel was around the Pearl River Delta. I took control of the the travel page. And I basically would go to places like Boshan and Zhuhai and Jiangmen and, and document local interest, which was mostly at, in those days and still to some degree now done by bus. But I was conscious that these, these you know, Beginning with the Tianjin-Beijing line, this railway was expanding. And so in 2014, once I'd finally was a freelancer and writing guidebooks and travel magazine articles, I, I, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to start to ride China by its high-speed trains. That was the initial concept for the book. But what I discovered was that, you know, yeah, a lot of the train stations are out of town. They're built without much atmosphere. Uh, you know, very, they're, they're built like airports. Mm. And in some ways, the experience of riding the high speed train is a bit like a, an airplane. You, you just right. sit three in a row. I still found because the Chinese are so curious and naturally 
I, I really believe this is a conceit that Chinese people have like natural intimacy with strangers sometimes that just wouldn't exist in the UK. I mean, my country is notorious for hiding behind your broadsheet newspaper or probably these days a Kindle or iPad. But I still found people would, would, would ask me where I was from and, and, and we get chatting on the trains as I rode more and more high speed trains. I started to hanker more for the green trains. And I think you see the scope of the book evolves and I start to take more green trains. Ah. Uh, firstly, that's because the high speed network was under construction. So there wasn't necessarily uh, a high speed train available to a particular destination. But the other thing that I started to grow conscious of was that there was this like, I mean, Mu Rong Chuiten, the, the, the novelist and, and, and big China critic, he often says there are many Chinas in China. Mm. But what was, was striking to me was that there just seemed to be this parallel world of the first tier cities and the countryside. And the first tier cities were making headlines all around the world. You know, that classic picture of somebody doing Tai Chi on the Bund with a freight ship going by. But when you took a train to the interior, it was still nominally very poor. Um, you know, almost, uh, it's a cliche, but it's a very different world. And so I wanted to ride high speed first class, but I also wanted to ride slow speed third class mm-hmm. and to see what kind of people I met and what kind of scenes I encountered. There, there, there seemed to be a, a, a grand class divide. You know, right. really two Chinas live, live, living next door to each other. I mean, they call migrant workers migrants in the same way that in the United States, right. uh, Hispanic workers, uh, are called migrants if they, if they migrate from, from Mexico or wherever. So that was, that became more of interest to me. And also I started to see the train as, a time machine. So even if you were taking a high speed train, it could take you from somewhere like Shanghai, which is in many ways more developed than most towns in my home country and really deposit you somewhere unchanged and left behind by this meteoric dash towards uh, the future that, that China's undergone. You know, that's a really great point, Thomas. And it- First of all, I, I appreciate your idea about the difference between high-speed trains and the green trains. I value the high-speed trains. I think it's one of the best things about living in China. Anytime I have to go anywhere that's less than like a five to six-hour train ride, I will automatically take the train. There's no flying involved whatsoever because it's just so much easier to take the train. They are so much more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even longer trips, I, I was doing some work out in Xining, uh earlier, like a couple months ago. I took the high-speed rail out there. I took, you know, one leg to Xi'an and one leg out to Xining because, honestly, it was just easier than going through the, the airport sometimes here. That said, once I got out to Xining and I was working on a student program and we were taking the green train to Dunhuang, my nostalgia wore off quite quickly over a 15- or 16-hour overnight train ride. But still, I can understand why there's a certain nostalgia for those more uh, simpler days of the train carriages full of smoke and the smell of roasted nuts and snacks and everyone huddled in together, uh, that kind of thing. 
But I wanted to kind of follow up on what she said about the, the way high-speed trains have kind of changed things. And I, I wanted to talk some more. How do you, not only has it changed our experience getting around China, but how do you feel like it's changed the people's lives who in the interior? How has it really affected those cities and the people who live them live in them as they you know have better access to the coast? Have they have better access to moving around? One of the things I loved about your book is you do spend a lot of time on trains in cities talking to people, whether it's in a carriage, it's in a bar, it's you know wherever. You, you're interacting. And I want to know if you can maybe talk a little bit using the train perhaps as a window for how this has changed people's lives. This kind of railway infrastructure, the, the, the numbers that I include in my book are immediately out of date as soon as you write them because China builds so quickly and develops so quickly. But, you know, last I read, it's something like 40,000 kilometers of high speed rail. They're still building more. Uh, it's a larger network than the rest of the high-speed railway network all over the globe. I mean, this is this is unprecedented in our time. I've taken those trains from Beijing to Shanghai in five hours. And if you're a historian like yourself, and 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 you you're aware that you're going to the Central Plains and these these remarkable places, and they're just whizzing by. But absolutely, I mean, in terms of the environmental effect, we have to be careful because the electricity that might be powering a train might be produced by uh, burning coal. But if it's if it's not, if it's produced in a sustainable manner, then that's helping to mitigate a lot of China's issues with pollution. Can you imagine if they hadn't built it and how many flights and car journeys there would be? Uh, the second thing is, just how much more pleasant it is to say go from Beijing to Shanghai on a high-speed train than to drive yourself or fly. And like I just mentioned, you get to see something of the scenery and perhaps meet someone. I actually think that the problem with meeting people on a high-speed train is not so much the speed of the train as the design of the carriage. But if they actually built the seats to face each other, they actually put a restaurant car in there, I think that would encourage more interaction. It's because they row the seats up uh, like you do on an airplane. That there's there's less intimacy from people. So, of course, somebody that would live in, say, Gansu province and needed to go uh, to the coast now can do it in, a, in an efficient, comfortable and potentially green manner. OK, mm. um, but I met a lot of people in the interior that couldn't afford high-speed railway. And that actually commented that it was, you know, many, many times the price of the green train and that the green trains are not being decommissioned at anything like the speed that you would imagine, that China is running a two-tiered system for a two-tiered society and a two-tiered economy. Um, You know, one guy, I was on a slow train from Chengdu, to Li Shui in the book, and the high-speed train whizzed by. It's very common that the high-speed trains will follow transport corridors that have already been established by older railway lines. So they, they run on the same line, or in a, not on exactly the same line as a slightly different technology, but, you know, next door to each other. And he would say, he, he said, you know, you're a rich foreigner. Why aren't you on that? 
why are you sort of slumming it with us and the reason was because i was researching this book and i was interested to to, to travel with people like him rather than you know some kind of businessman uh, that might be traveling at high speed so it's been transformative for some people that belong to the class that can afford it um but obviously uh, you know there, there are those that are that are getting left behind as well yeah I, I suppose we could criticize china for running these these two this two tier service but at the same time there are trains for everyone i mean in in rural yunnan province you can get trains through areas that are incredibly impoverished and it costs a couple of quite i mean Paul Theroux would recognize that China. We talk about China changing so much, and it, ha- it has and it does, but some things remain constant and unchanging as well. Yeah, I'm glad you point that out because one of the things I like about your book and the reason, I mean, if I ever get to teach a, a class on China to foreigners again, cross fingers, I would I would use this book to underscore a point. Uh, has to do with you know how many Chinas are there and how do we think of China? Uh, we used to it used to be this asked this question: What do Chinese people think about X or whatever X is? And his point was: Well, there was a time when maybe that made some sense before the opening up, you know. But very quickly, it doesn't make any sense because there's no such thing as the Chinese people. But but I'm wondering if even that's true. Uh, that it was always that way, and there was never such a thing as a unified China. And what I love about your book is that you don't engage in, because it's a travel book, and you're basically just recording your interesting experiences and conversations and your own confusion and frustration at the different you know, places. But it's, what's interesting is that every stop, practically, is a, a, different, a different culinary world, a different language world, a different moral universe, and very often a different time universe. It's, it's you're, you're, in t- you're going back in time, and then sometimes, for me anyway, it looks like you're going forward in time when I go to parts of Shanghai, right? And just reading your book gives anyone who's paying attention to notice that this China is a, an incredibly diverse place that makes my own country, the United States, look look like a monolithic, <laughs> uh, you know, with McDonald's at every town you go to, right? I love the way you did that. Are you, do you, do you think of yourself as, you know, there are people there, lumpers and splitters, people that like to find commonality and then people that sort of want, pay attention to differences. Do you think you're a splitter? Just You just take new information as it comes and don't try to unify it with the other information you have? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, Chinese government and media does it no favors by projecting a homogenous right. picture of China. Before I forget, you, you're, you're, you're very language oriented. What you just said, one of the things the government is doing, in fact, is trying to erase those language worlds and right. create a, a homogenized Kutonghua universe. You know, I was aware of that and documented some of it in ethnic minority areas. Yeah, when I was there, that there there was tensions. I particularly encountered a lot of tension between Han communities and Hui Muslim communities in the in the West. 
and that's that's in the book you know i didn't i didn't shy away from from any of that and of course the the last chapters where i'm traveling in the tibetan world not just in in tibet itself but also in in Qinghai and and around there were tensions and that's an obvious one yeah during the mao era and a little bit afterwards chinese would feel to sort of project a certain common culture based on propaganda but also associate socialist ideology amongst the han there's still certain collectivist notions that you know they will say we chinese do this and and some othering uh, of foreigners but i think that really gets covered in the news media of the west and is often used to as a negative about china and in fact when i was there you know sichuan hip-hop was blowing up i'm a rock and roll guy but i had to get this in the book somehow because it just seemed so quirky and they were rapping in the the Chengdu dialect and the Chongqing dialect and it just seemed so far out I thought that this you know travel writing is really you're writing for the ages there's a real pleasure in reading I'm reading about Norman Lewis in in Naples in the 1940s what do I know about Italy or what was happening in Naples? But, you know, he's presenting that. Travel writing is also time mm. is also a place. Time is also right. a destination. So I was thinking 10, 20 years from now, somebody's going to read this and go, there was this rap scene and there were <laughs> these right. kids. And, you know, a guy came up to me on the subway in Chengdu with his like baggy trousers and his hat on backwards and, and kind of went up to me in English and went like, yo, what up? And I was, I was like, you know, it's a short Welshman, you know, guitar player or whatever. I was, <laughs> yeah, what up, man? There's a range of ideas and beliefs and, and, and viewpoints that doesn't make it to the surface so much because the way the Chinese government controls the narrative, but also the way the West tends to report on China. And I just wanted to go beyond the headlines and under the skin. I'm a Mandarin speaker. I spoke to people and I wrote down what they said and whether they were being critical of the CCP or the West, whether they were uh, relatively indoctrinated about the system or trying to express their individualism in some way. Some way. It wasn't really my job to to judge that. Just just to put it down in words and let other people make of it what they make of it. One of the things I, one of the aspects of travel writing I enjoy is that there's the characters that are in the book other than the writer. And your book is a great example of this. You have a, an incredibly colorful and diverse cast of supporting characters in your book who really bring the adventures to life. And I think that's, again, it's a great characteristic of the genre. I mean, what would Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas be without like Oscar Acosta, right? I'm thinking about all the different adventures you had. And is there are there any of the characters that you wrote about in your book who shared these adventures with you? Do any stand out in any particular way from, from your memory? And if you could, maybe without giving too much of the book away, maybe share an anecdote about this person and, and an, an experience that you shared with them while on the road. So, uh, you know, one character that's 
that jumps to mind is in Chapter 3, Richard Hur, the Nashi tour guide. I was down in Yunnan province. I actually went there via an epic ra- railway journey. I went from Changchun to Kunming. It seemed nice to go from like the Long Spring to the City of Spring and via a green train. It took like two and a half, three days. I mean, it was just an epic journey. But I actually had procured from a ex-photographer turned travel publisher in Hong Kong some pictures of Bruce Chatwin, the famous uh, travel writer. Mm -hmm. And he went to Lijiang for the New York Times in 1986. This, you know, as a a travel writer, it it was an obvious in the boots of story, which I I, I sold to the, the South China Morning Post. And I was there to research that. And then I had another assignment, which is not included in the book, which is I was going to Shangri-La because they had a craft beer brand that had been established. But while I was walking around Lijiang, I was kind of going to all the places that Chatwin went to, meeting the people that Chatwin met, seeing what had changed, what had stayed the same. And I felt like I was just ticking things off a bucket list. You know, it was just, okay, Chatwin went here, says this, I went here and said that. And I met this guy. He spoke English quite well. And I said to him, I said, Richard, I said, can you take me just off the map? Like, I think Bruce Chatwin was interested in nomads. The Nashi people were originally nomadic before they settled in the valley. I think let's just follow his, his journey and spirit rather than trying to go to all these places. And this guy was, just, I mean, he was hilarious. He's an absolute motor mouth. He was obsessed with Borshi Lai and the and the scandal that had enshrouded that. He kept talking about Borshi Lai and what do you think happened. He'd split up with his wife and he was just chasing after every woman we met, every waitress, every hotelier, farmers in the field. He'd be like, Oh, look at her, she's lovely. I'd be like, <laughs> Richard, can we can we just focus on the you know the road? completely eccentric character he'd been a tour guide for 10 years and he managed to get lost at every turn he couldn't get me anywhere and we ended up sort of sleeping in some farmhouse like sharing a bed together in the middle of nowhere but i he really endeared himself to me i thought he was so so charming and so funny i think those kind of people when you meet them they're they're gold you know they're gold and the, the idea that He's there now, somewhere in Lijiang, romping around the hills. <laughs> he sent he, he sends me messages on WeChat every now and then, you know, like where oh. are you? And I'll be like, oh, I'm in the Philippines. He's like, any pretty girls there? I'm so lonely. And you know, I ended up staying at his house, and it was the classic bachelor pad where, once the wife had moved out, it hadn't seen a mop collecting dust. Poor chap. Yeah, and those kind of characters. I mean, I knew some characters like. Uh, LZD was going to be great because he was a close friend of mine. For people that aren't familiar, Lee Jung De, he's a award-winning photographer and artist and uh, an extraordinary poet and intellectual, but also a kind of Charles Bukowski type figure, a, a mm. sort of tragic drunk that can't accept the way China is to its creative classes and that manifests itself in all sorts of drunken debauchery. So I knew he would he would be good, and he was characteristically outrageous on the railroad. But running into someone like Richard Hur, you can't plan for. 
you, you, you're just going right. to, someone you meet on a hillside and they're brilliant. Thomas, thank you so much for, for agreeing to come on the show today. When are you ever, are you, when are you coming back to the motherland? Are you have any plans to revisit or? Oh, I'm desperate. I miss it every day. You know, it seems like it's, you know, you, you began this conversation by talking about how 798 had changed and in some ways it really has changed so much that my book, which, you know, effectively ends in 2019 is already, it's a historical document. You know, right. it's, it's, we've had COVID, we've had the pandemic, we, we're, ha we're experiencing the great uncoupling. I like the train metaphor uh, between West and East. It's really not as easy for Westerners to go into China as it was before. And certainly I think not just my freelancing days, but anyone's freelancing days are over. You need, you need the right documentation, the right visa. But I was there for the summer. I helped a friend manage his fantastic cultural exchange program. He basically brings English teachers to, to Yangshuo. I was there basically on hand. I'm not sure how useful I was just as a, a Mandarin speaker in case they, they needed one. But that got me a, a two-month visa for, for the duration of the job. And actually, I took a lot of trains because I was zipping back and forth between Hong Kong, Guangzhou, and Yangshuo. And first off, I was a little bit you know, unnerved by the experience. There seemed to be a lot more propaganda on walls, on posters, basically in any space there could be. There were no ATMs. You you have to you know use WeChat money, but once I got beyond that, I realized wow, it's still China. It's still so interesting, so seductive, so magical, and so interesting to travel that all my sort of qualms that are probably based on reading too many British and American newspapers sort of dissipated, and I just wanted to be back. So uh, that was the long answer. The short answer is yeah, if I can find a a, a full-time gig or a sponsor, I, I would be I would be back. I know, and I have friends that believe their China days are are over. But for me, I, I, if circumstances, if the stars aligned, I would happily go back. Yeah. That said, for now, dotting around Southeast Asia, writing guidebooks is a pretty is a pretty nice existence as well. I'm really not going to complain. Well, if you make it back to Beijing, be sure to bring your guitar. I'll be happy to you know, play some piano. You'll play guitar, and then David will play the piano much, much better than I will. It'll be a regular old hootenanny. No, I'm going to sing. I'm, I'm a singer now, Jeremiah. We need to explore that at our next episode. <laughs> no no joke, they're trying to turn me into a singer, too. I'm actually, Tom, I'm playing in a band that you've played with, uh, one of the many incarnations of the Beijing Dead, which is, yeah, Beijing's best, and I am assuming only... A Grateful Dead tribute band. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're we're doing some musical stuff these days. And David's still playing with his jazz band as well. He's going to be. Uh, I'm going to a gig of his on November 11th. That's something I really miss as well. I th I think that the China, despite the periodic crackdowns, always has this wonderful, especially Beijing, this wonderful culture of live music that has been kind of absent in my life and. Beijing Dead in all their various incarnations are just just brilliant. It somehow fits the city. 
somehow fits the city so well. Well, the book is Harmony Express by Thomas Bird. It's published by Earnshaw Books. It is out this week. So be sure to pick up a copy. Thomas, is it available in China or I, I don't know how distribution works. Is, is, it, is there an online copy? How does someone get their hands on this book? So you can go to Earnshaw Books directly. Uh, they have a good website. Uh, it's already on Amazon UK and Amazon US. We are in the process of plotting a launch in Hong Kong. It's just about getting everybody's everything aligned whether it will be available in mainland china i don't know as i understand it books are quite rigorously checked these days i don't think i've written a particularly political book but for sure i think the, the main retailers in, in hong kong bookazine and so forth will, will have it stopped sooner rather than later well thank you thomas david thank you very much good to see you again if only virtually Hopefully we can be back in the same room pretty soon. And thank you all for listening to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on the web. You can find us on Spotify. Or you can just find us at the Golden Weasel in Beijing. Ask your friends what that means. Anyway, cue the drums. <laughs>